welcome everybody to the first episode of the Crushing Audio Podcast, where we have podcast in the title so that you know we're a podcast, just in case you didn't. The adventure is set in front of you. There is a mage, a warrior, a priest, and an elfish rogue. These four walk into a bar. Let's call that the Tavern. Sorry, fellow nerds, this isn't a podcast about D&D, though that might be a topic for the future. Our platform is simple. A couple of guys who have known each other for a long time talk shit. We're going to discuss different avenues of life. We're going to discuss different topics that we all enjoy. And hopefully you guys get to enjoy it as well, from our lips to your ears, in a non-perverse way. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different because we decided not to have like a Skype discussion, but a one-sided, I tell you what I need you to know. So the topic itself is the three games of our youth that reflect on the games that we play now. So what did we play when we were younger that made us play the games we play now? And our first speaker of the night is going to be Mikey. Please give him your attention, your love. No hard-ons, please. He has enough of those on his own. Thank you. Take it away, Mikey. Hi, everybody. It's Mike here for the Crushing AP podcast. Before I do those three games, however, there are two that I want to give honorable mention to. Those being, first, uh, the NES game Shadowgate. For those of you who have played it, I'm sure you enjoyed it at the same level I did. It was a point-and-click adventure, which is amazing because it was for the Nintendo and there was no mouse for it. You just kind of moved your cursor around the screen, figured out how to open up the next room. It's a precursor, ultimately, to what we know today as escape rooms, uh, both the video game as well as physical escape rooms that are pretty popular in the last couple of years. But it's very brilliant because, you know, you enter a room in a hallway where there's a dragon at the end of the hallway. You find that out an instant later because directly in front of you is a treasure chest, a sword, a spear, a shield, and a helmet. And you have time to only get to one of them. And through trial and error, you figured out which one was the right one. But then you also had to find the torch and how do you get past this wraith. Oh, you have to... Spoiler. Set the rug on fire. Yeah, it was a little, uh, little interesting puzzles like that that made the game really unique and really appreciate the puzzle games that we have today. And if you enjoy that, I highly recommend the game for iPhone and uh, Android called The Room and uh, The Room 2, its sequel. While the games themselves might be a little short, uh, I found them terribly satisfying, especially once you figured out the puzzles and how to do them. The other honorable mention has to go to Street Fighter 2. I remember the first time I saw that in the uh, arcade. I saw the first game, and of course that's forgettable. It's It really was kind of indistinct, and it, the, nothing really was unique about it. But in Street Fighter 2, just the way that all the different characters were fairly well balanced, that you could pick almost anybody and beat almost anybody, really blew my mind. I think it blew away everyone's minds that there were so many clones that came thereafter. And for a while, I was way, way deep into fighting games that I was picking up all of them for the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation, whether it was uh, Time Killers or Killer Instinct or Primal Rage. Uh, let's see, what else? we got Clay Fighter, the Fatal Fury series, Samurai Showdown series, the World Hero series. And hell, there was even a uh, Super Nintendo Mighty Morphin Power Rangers game, which was actually pretty good. Uh, so that one, like I said, fighting games was a big part of my life for a while there. Uh, granted, for every good game, there was also a Shaq Fu. And I played Shaq Fu. And if you've never played it, and you really hate yourself, I recommend it. I recommend just picking up a game 
and finishing it with anybody. Just pick a character. I think you can only potentially pick Shaq. He's the best one. And just finish it once. It is so painfully bad. It really is. And I actually recall seeing an episode of the ABC show Fresh Off the Boat, which featured how well a character trying to get this game and him learning the hard way how bad it actually is. So, the three games that are most pivotal and really influence the games that I play today. Number one has to be, well, years ago when I was, uh, I think, at Darien Lake with a family, I went to the arcade there and my little mind was blown away because there was this arcade uh, cabinet that was just massive. It was huge compared to all the other ones. It was very colorful. It's red, blue, green, and yellow sections. And then I realized it was actually a four-player game. The game, if you don't recognize it yet, is called Gauntlet. And it's a top-down dungeon crawler where you pick one of four characters, a blue Valkyrie, a red warrior, a yellow wizard, and a green elf. And you just went against these endless hordes of monsters, just clearing the dungeon, getting more keys, opening doors, going against more monsters, destroying the monster generators. Uh, It was pretty mindless, but at the same time terribly fun. And it taught me and conditioned me early on that I really am a social gamer. I am all about gaming with people, couch co-op. While online has its merits, there's something to be said about playing something with somebody right there. So that's parlayed into Champions of Norath, 1 and 2, I think, uh, X-Men Legends, Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Doing the social gaming with someone else is far different from just picking up the controller and playing with somebody on the other side of the planet you've never met and will never meet. So I really appreciate how Gauntlet taught me that, you know, playing together has so much more satisfaction to it. These days, uh, I've appreciated games like Castle Crashers. You don't know Jack, which is technically an old game. And if you have three to seven friends who enjoy gaming together, a little bit of trivia, and you like poking fun at each other, I highly recommend getting the Jackbox TV game set that's available, I believe, on the PlayStation Network and on Xbox Live. Totally worth it for five games. Completely worth it. It's got You Don't Know Jack in there. It's got Fibbage. And while I'm shilling for those games, it really is even one night's worth of entertainment that is well worth it. But while Gauntlet is such an old game, you can also credit something as recent as Diablo 3 to Gauntlet because they're basically the same game. For people, dungeon crawling, and leveling up. I mean, Gauntlet 2 took it up a notch in number 2, where they had dragons, and then different colors could be different classes. So instead of just a yellow wizard, you could be a yellow warrior. You could have four warriors, you know. That was, for the time, was pretty, pretty shocking that you could just change the character classes just so easily. So I appreciate Gauntlet and the way that it showed me the, the, the real possibilities of being able to play with your friends and living or dying based on the actions of your entire team. So that's Gauntlet. The second most influential game in my life that has influenced the games I play now would have to be Dragon Warrior uh, for the NES. Now, it's also known as Dragon Quest. It kind of had a name switch over or translation depending on who you talk to. But if memory serves, I think I read the Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest series is so popular in Japan that they've even scheduled you know, vacation days or days off to coincide with the release of Dragon Warrior just because so many people play the game and love the game that they want to skip work when it's first released or when the new one is initially released. So there are, I think, like, there's got to be at least a dozen different versions on Super Nintendo 
Nintendo and and handhelds. So yeah, that, that game's been around for a while. I think I played the first Dragon Warrior and the second Dragon Warrior. I don't know if I got to the third, but the importance of Dragon Warrior was the first game was that it was hard. It it took a lot of time. Like you could leave the town and die. <laughs> that was a strange concept. Well, I mean, for me anyway, it seemed because they had random encounters. Anybody who plays games today, you don't know what a random encounter is. Thankfully, they've shied away from those for the most part. I think the Final Fantasies might still do them. But you just walk through the forest and they would randomly appear. While it was area-based, it was still pretty frustrating to go from point A to point B and have 20 fights or four fights in that same space. Thankfully, they've gotten away from that. But to describe how hard this game was... Uh, and the depth that it had for its time, there was no internet, okay? There was no way to look up how to do something. You had about three sources that you could rely on, and that was your friends, if they happened to figure something out, Nintendo Power Magazine, GamePro Magazine, so either one of those, or if you were lucky enough to catch it, one of the handful of video game shows that were on TV at the time, like GamePro TV, or uh, Canadian show Game Nation, I think, was also one of them. There was a couple others uh, that were, you know, really early on, but as far as figuring these out, you, you had to figure them out yourself, right? You didn't have these things, and you sure didn't have a PVR to record Game Nation or GamePro TV. So you had to figure it out and just put in the time and just really commit to, like, leveling up your character and putting that time to figure out what areas you could get to and how far you could get before you're getting your butt kicked and then rush back to town and refill on supplies and hopefully you'll get to the next town assuming this is the right direction to the next town and you would tear out a map from the nearest game pro magazine so that you could figure out what the dungeon looked like and try to navigate that but even if you get from point a to point b You'd still have those random encounters in, be- in between. And, you know, just the, the developing your character and getting your skills and armor and working up uh, that sort of scenario, uh, you know, a real RPG at its core, really got me into that type of genre. So it explains why I was into World of Warcraft for almost five years. Thankfully, I'm a recovering addict. Thank you. But yeah, World of Warcraft was a big part of it of my life for five years, and Dragon Warrior was the origin of that. But nowadays, I enjoy leveling up characters or customizing characters and unlocking new talents and learning new spells and melting faces. And that, thankfully, is all thanks to the little game called Dragon Warrior. That brings us to the third and final game that has affected me and the games that I play. That is, if you can believe this, and I am not ashamed of it, Pokemon. Yes, I know, Pokemon, I'll give you a moment to groan. Assholes. Anyway, if you played Pokemon, unlike any other game, it perfectly harnessed the one thing that a lot of us, if not all of us, have, and that is it appeals to the collector inside of us. And some people collect stamps, I mean, some people collect comic books, and some people collect uh, sexual partners. So in one way or another, we all enjoy, you know, watching the entire series of Sex and the City. Or you like watching every one of the Lord of the Rings or the Star Wars trilogy and picking it apart and making sure you see every little nuance that wasn't there before and nitpicking on... So... 
Pokemon really took that and ran with it. They gave you a finite number of monsters that you could feasibly get. You could get every one of them. Oh, you also need a friend because, you know, you needed that dozen that wasn't on your cartridge. Like, if you had the red cartridge, there were 12 you couldn't get that were on the blue, and vice versa. So you had to trade with your friends. It was a social game, that little bit there, and made you want to fight against your friends. It really it brilliantly took little cute cuddly monsters and then turned them into dragons and giant mean monsters. It had uh, a system where spells were stronger against other spells. Well, that's been done before. This expanded to have, what, nine different monster types that really exploited that? So, I was thinking about this even further, and I have a theory that while Pokemon influenced the games that I play today, it influenced 90% of the games that we play today. Because if you think about it, if you're playing any game where a spell is weaker or stronger based on the monster that you're going against, Pokemon kind of exploited that and simplified it, yet added a fair amount of depth because each monster had their own combination of those uh, elements and you could use them in conjunction against another monster so it really used your mind to you know and your creativity to exploit these weaknesses as well as share tips with your friends as to how they did it if you've ever played batman and had him glide 50 feet while under five feet above the ground in arkham uh, congratulations, I think you'd have to thank Pikachu for that because the uh, PlayStation trophies and the Xbox achievement systems as well as the in-game reward systems of today's games that give the little you know ping that let you know, hey, you have over 100 kills is a system that in a lot of ways I would credit to Pokemon because they set the bar of, well, here's the things that you could achieve. Now, people are going to go out of their way to achieve those extra things. And because of that, whether you know, you're know you throwing a knife across the field of a Call of Duty game or collecting coins to upgrade your next spell, Pokemon kind of did a simplified yet elegant version of that and has since expanded it to really cover a lot of other games. If you really think about it, I think you'd be surprised just how much Pokemon has changed games. I mean, it's a literal game changer for the games that we have today. But that's just my two cents, and I'm sure you'll have your own. Please let me know. I mean, you can check out my other podcasts, uh, which don't currently exist, or you can tweet at me. My uh, Twitter is at Katy Perry. So yeah, let me know. But yeah, that's all for me. And uh, I'll see you next time on uh, Crushing AP Podcast. All right. Later. Next on the pod is Alex and his ideas about gaming. Hey, this is Alex, and I'm just going to jump right into it. So these are the three games that most influenced my life as a gamer growing up, or the three games that had the biggest influence on my gaming path and still influenced, you know, the games that I play today. First up is Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So as an immigrant kid with few friends in my kind of halcyon years in Canada, my family's Nintendo system was a godsend to myself and my sisters. It was the first 2D platformer I ever played, the first game I ever 
never really played or put any considerable time or effort into. And I really have to say that the love affair with gaming, you know, very quickly began with Super Mario Brothers. Uh, the basic mechanics, I think everyone knows, scroll right, avoid obstacles by running, jumping, ducking, saving the princess, and the really cool things about this game, uh, the things that really struck me as a kid, obviously were the challenge, the sense of danger, discovery, uh, just how weird it was jumping on these strange creatures, and the replayability of focusing on mastering the game, finding all of the secret one-ups, finding the fastest way to finish a castle, and again, it's also the first game I ever really shared with my sisters, uh, so we would take turns playing as Mario, playing as Luigi, and um, that was a nice bonding experience for me, just, you know, with my family. This influenced a lot of the games that I would play into the future, as 2D platformers are still some of my favorite games of all time. We're talking about Mario 1, 2, 3, World, Yoshi's Island, going to the PC to Jazz Jackrabbit, then jumping back to the NES to games like Tiny Toon Adventures, Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, 2.5D stuff like Pandemonium for the PC and PlayStation. Very underrated game, one that I really loved for its style, its music, and just how out there it was. Uh, Klonoa, Crash Bandicoot, and then going into 3D games like Spyro the Dragon, and Super Mario 64. All of these games have roots in Super Mario Brothers, and for that reason, I can safely say that Super Mario Brothers is pretty much the linchpin that started my life as a gamer. Number two, another game that really got me into a genre, and that would be Final Fantasy IV. Now, I can't say if it's the first RPG I ever played, but it's definitely the first RPG I ever played and put any considerable time into, and definitely the first RPG I was ever able to finish successfully. Now, the funny thing about this game is the first time I played it, I did not play it on the SNES. I actually played it on an emulator. And this emulator had no sound, and it played the game at half the speed. I'm just going to repeat that. This game had no sound, and it played at half the speed. The game must have been really good for me to be able to make it through that, because later on I did play it on the SNES, and I did play the updated 3D version on the Nintendo DS, which I think is the best version today, and I really, really loved it. Essentially, it's the quintessential RPG that used random enemy encounters, a battle screen that came up to separate, you know, the main screen from the travel screen, or should I say the battle screen from the main travel screen. Uh, you had to input battle commands, uh, there's a colorful cast of characters and memorable scenes that really made you care about what was happening around you. So I guess what I enjoyed most about this game, and it might seem passe today, but when I was playing it in the 90s it was this very magical otherworldly experience and it was perfect for someone like me who pretty much preferred a single-player experience over multiplayer gaming. I guess I kind of hogged the systems when I was a kid from my sisters and I probably still had a tendency to do that even when I played with my friends I always wanted to have the controller back in my hand so for that reason most of my I guess most memorable gaming experiences if you can call them that would be single-player experiences, solitary experiences in my basement with me hanging out with Cecil and hanging out with Tella and, you know, hanging out with Mario, Link, etc. So, Final Fantasy IV, that is the game that really introduced me to RPGs, and it's also a game that influenced and part of the reason I also enjoyed Final Fantasy IV was that it shared elements with a lot of my favorite children's fiction and even some of the fiction I read today. So, back when I was a kid, my favorite book as a kid definitely was The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, takes place in the magical land, um, there's a magical talking lion, there's a, an evil witch. So these types of characters, these types of tropes, Final Fantasy IV also 
played into them and very much linked into what I enjoyed in narratives at the time, what I enjoyed in fiction at the time, and even what I continue to enjoy until today, which are largely stories that are entrenched in some type of fantasy. In terms of the impact on my gaming path, I moved on to Final Fantasy VI, Secret of Mana, Super Mario RPG, Breath of Fire, and then Final Fantasy VII just totally blew my mind when I played it on the PlayStation and bought a PlayStation for it, Wild Arms, etc., and just RPGs in general. And again, RPGs quickly became uh, and were my favorite, favorite genre for a time there from the mid-90s to late-90s. And then, the third game on my list. <sighs> you know, I started off by talking about Super Mario Bros., a 2D platformer. I then moved on to talk about Final Fantasy IV. Now, if only there was a game that could combine the Twitch, fast-placed gameplay of a 2D platformer with the stats building, the characters, the dialogue of an RPG. Well, thankfully, that game did happen, and that game was released on the PlayStation, and that game is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. So in this game, you do play as Dracula's son Alucard, and by now I think a lot of people are familiar with this style of game, calling it the Metroidvania, as this was a style of game that was pioneered by Metroid, and specifically I think Super Metroid is the game that most people point to as being one of the beacons, shining beacons of this type of genre. But Castlevania Symphony of the Night was my first true exposure to this style of game, and I fell in love with it. Everything from the smooth, smooth, smooth controls, to the stats building, to the customizability that you could have. And again, this is a game that you could play in a variety of ways. You could just beat the shit out of everything and power up Alucard to hell, or you could challenge yourself and try to beat it just using your fists or cheap weapons, or just maybe running in through, through magic spells. It really did feel like this infinitely customizable toy that you could just do anything with. For that reason, I'd say that Castlevania Symphony of the Night was something that really, really struck a chord with me, a very positive chord with me, and that continues to strike a chord with me today. I mean, I've played a lot of the Castlevanias that have come after, specifically Aria of Sorrow, Harmony of Dissonance, Circle of the Moon, etc. Even though Aria of Sorrow is debatably a better game than Symphony of the Night, the nostalgia I have attached to Symphony of the Night will always make it my favorite. Again, the gothic backgrounds, the uh, the really great gameplay, the cheesy voice acting, and the music. My god, the music was so freaking phenomenal, and it was the best. And it was also the second time since Final Fantasy VI um, that I had actually gone out of my way to order a soundtrack for a game. Now again, it was overpriced to hell. It was like the equivalent of, you know, going to the in the 90s to going to a hobby shop and buying a VHS of anime with three episodes on it and paying 40 bucks for it. And it was similar to that. I think it was between 40 and $60, but so worth it. Maybe not now in the age of YouTube when you can just literally stream the whole friggin' soundtrack for free. But at that time, you know, it, it felt very very special. Honorable mentions, I really gotta say, after all these games, The Legend of Zelda is one that I really struggled with keeping off this personal list of mine, um, just because it was a game that I spent a ton of time with on the NES. I don't even remember how the hell I beat that game, because quite honestly, there were so many things in it that, looking back, I don't know how I would have had the patience to figure them out today. Now, you think about the Lost Woods and trying to figure out, you know, which way you had to go, what combination of directions you had to go in order to get through them. You think about having to find a dungeon that was hidden behind a random bush on this gigantic, mammoth overworld that you just had to burn this bush randomly and find one of the dungeons. Yeah, unbelievable, but I played that game and beat it multiple, multiple, multiple times as a kid, loved it, 
And again, it's something that was also very much based in fantasy, very much, very much based in action, adventure, exploring, and replayability, and this single-player adventure of being the hero. And I think that's a narrative that's always appealed to me, and I think is going to continue appealing to me. Well, that is my list, and once again, that's Super Mario Bros. 1, Final Fantasy 4, and Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Honorable mention, Legend of Zelda. Thanks for listening, and talk to you guys next time. And now to my brother Mark, who's not actually my brother and looks nothing like me whatsoever. Pokemon Puzzle League for the Nintendo 64 had so very little to do with Pokemon, the monster collecting game, that it was curious why having that connection at all. Most SNESers would know its predecessor as the Tetrisy title Tetris Attack, a matching game where six columns of varied colored boxes need to be matched up by swapping two horizontal blocks to create matches of three or more. Now, as someone who went back and played Tetris Attack to scratch an itch from when I loaned out my console, it is an almost laughable original concept because Pokemon Puzzle League was like Tetris Attack on crack cocaine. It was frenetic, way faster, and with a few extras to make an already difficult game more insane. And what makes an already more insane game insane? Going head-to-head against someone who sees combinations like a savant, Mikey, who is contributing to this, would mercilessly whoop my ass at it, and I'd spend hours trying to beat him. And I would beat him, probably had less than a 10% win rate, but I could. Most often than not, it was usually at his own failings, rather than my own supreme abilities. Head to Head had a 10 point handicapping scale, which was fantastic. And even though 10 was very frenetic to play, it was on the cusp of possible. Also, I found my progress could be measured by defeating Mikey being on level 6, then going up to 7, 8, and upward. The N64 version had the standard 6 column layout, and it was flat, and Mikey reigned on this version. However, there was a second option, where you effectively had 12 columns to manage, and it wrapped around like a cylinder. Now, Mikey may stead otherwise, but he was terrible at this. He could build a chain of combos that looked that took 60 seconds to resolve regularly on the hardest setting, and that usually ended your game. In the head-to-head, the longer the combo, the larger the block that land on top of your own stack of boxes. Now, managing multiple combos on a board that doesn't shift left to right is tough enough, and the cylinder, at least for him, proved to be impossible. He'd work on one side, but he'd forget about the other side. I would constantly move left or right and do laps around the cylinder, making smaller combos and peppering them with annoying obstacles. Often that would be enough. He did not like this version. Needless to say, I've been compelled by simple matching games and played them through to completion or as complete as you can get. Puzzle Quest, Puzzle Quest 2, Candy Crush, and my current favorite portable game, Puzzles and Dragons. Now, I don't know how well Pokemon Puzzle League would port to, say, a handheld, but is as good as a puzzler, solo or head-to-head, as I've ever played. It was during a New Year's party, visiting other friends in another town, where a rented N64 was procured and a few multiplayer games were had. But the game that won the night, hands down, was Bomberman 64. Four players, 3D field, well-designed arenas, and giant explosions. If that wasn't enticing enough, when you were knocked out of a round, you became a ghost, where you could latch onto other players and run them into pending explosions. Absolute madness. What was brilliant is that even if you were terrible, more often than not, you had a direct impact on the outcome of the round. Your game ended when everyone else's did. So for the next few years, an N64 with four controllers and Bomberman 64 were a tradition. Always played no time limit, ghosts on, no poisons. For those of you who don't know, Bomberman was, almost always, played on a grid, top down, with blocks placed around the board. To start, you were given a one bomb at a time limit, an explosion length of one square in four directions. If you blew up a block that uncovered a bomb icon, you increased your limit of bombs by one. 
If it uncovered a smiling, flamey face icon, because that's what it looked like, you increased the length of your explosion by one square. Placing a bomb down, you had about three to five seconds to run and get out of the way of the impending explosion. You could bomber side very easily, but it was a rite of passage. As the board progresses, you could find other power-ups, such as running, moving faster, uh, the ability to run through a planted bomb, or kicking a bomb in a straight line, but that's just some of them. Bomberman 64 and Bomberman 264 were the only ones to really attempt 3D environments. All the others were strictly 2D, up to including the release on the Xbox 360. But I did, at one point, go back and play through all the older editions of Bomberman that I could get my hands on. Earlier versions were, shall we say, primitive and limited as far as the difficulty and, well, the cool stuff you could do. But as the game's popularity grew, so did the number of titles and the inventive power-ups. My personal favorite was always the triggered bombs. You placed it on the ground with one button and then set it off whenever you wanted to with the other. Unless, of course, someone else blows it up before you get a chance to. But for me, it was that satisfaction of blowing stuff up. Causing the explosion, mastering how and when that explosion took place. I assure you I am no pyromaniac, but there is a bit of a god-esque feeling when you could blow up anything. Uh, the Dreamcast version, I must say, that was one of the last games purchased for that system. And it is the best version to date. If you can get your hands on it or get an opportunity to try it, I recommend that you do. But it's that sense of one-button destruction that has been a big part of my gaming preferences. I can channel that feeling to playing a game of Rockets in Halo or casting an area spell effect in Diablo, hitting super spells in just about any RPG. But the closest I've ever come to quenching that thirst of one-shot blowing up stuff in spectacular fashion has been from the two Crackdown games that came out for Xbox 360. As you became more and more proficient in explosives and grenades as skills, the more damage they would do for you later in the game. Leaping off of a building, firing three rockets before hitting the ground, and then leveling everything in front of me had me wanting to do it again and again. So very good. The last game was tough to come up with. My first system was an Atari 2600. And it was an arcade kid. I had the NES, Genesis. My brother bought a PlayStation and a PS2. I had a Dreamcast, Xbox, Xbox 360. I know, break much. In these, I played many great games that didn't necessarily inspire me. I also played many games that were terrible. I played a few that were quirky, and a few that I just did never truly get. I'm currently playing a game called Mini Metro. It's a puzzler where you make subway lines connecting stations. Each week, your city expands, your map expands, the number of subway stations grow, and you have to make some tough choices. At the end of each week, you get an opportunity to add a line or another car or tunnels to dig underground, usually underwater. It's a simple premise, but it's a unique take on resource management. But what drew me to the game was the art style. As a graphic designer, my eyes are drawn towards beautiful color palettes and simple line art and icons. And I also love maps. Mini Metro is playing with an interactive subway map that you'd find in any city. So I've discovered that the aesthetics of games can be as important as the game itself, as long as it, you know, resonates with you personally. Now I'm not talking about 3D rendering or environmental effects, but the visual style of the game and how it not only complements but enhances the gameplay experience. For example, Minecraft is ugly, I suppose, but the aesthetics are, either accidentally or intentionally, perfect. Because it's virtual Lego. So why not have everything blocky? The Dreamcast had a library of games that just oozed on the blend of aesthetics and gameplay. Choo Choo Rocket was cute and insane. 
Crazy Taxi made an absurdist plot come alive with a bright environment. But the first game I truly noticed a deliberate art style, blending perfectly with gaming plot and mechanics has to be Jet Set Radio, a game about rebelling against a futuristic police state by taking out the bad guys and vandalizing property, all while rolling, sliding, and grinding on rollerblades. Even the music was perfect. Jet Set Radio is one of the first video game soundtracks I'd actually purchased. This is also one of the first games that used the style of cell shading, which is adding depth, I guess artificially, to models by adding shading or gradients to the object. In 2000, this was a breakthrough in artistic design. You've since seen this style in Grand Theft Auto Chinatown Wars, Zelda's The Wind Waker, Beautiful Joe, and a few others. And Jet Set Radio was hard. I never came close to beating it. Now, a sequel did come out for the Xbox, which I played the crap out of, loved, beat, and most importantly, also bought its soundtrack. Jet Set Radio Future was delightfully weirder, but satisfying and gorgeous. These games almost have to attract you by looks first, then find out if it works for you or what you're interested in. I struggled to come up with other games that fit this archetype, because it's a personal preference on two different scales. But I found that Dreamcast had a pile that fit these criteria and it's why I personally believe it's the best system ever. I'm biased, but it's the system most people never played either. And back to me, it's Philly, and it's my job to wrap the shebang up with my choices. Let's start with the classic essential from the Atari 2600 console. That's right, my friends on the interwebs, my Atari 2600, also known as the Atari 2600 Junior, with its sleek design and oh-so-awesome joystick. You remember the one with the little red button? You'd smash over and over, and more than once tear the stick itself off the base? Thanks, Dad, for not beating me for that. We were talking about games, right? Right. Okay, Mario Brothers, the original bad boy duel, as little sprites with the ability to jump, bump, and kick monsters to their doom. You know how nowadays, you have a multitude of baddies that you have to figure out how to take down? Back then, it was four. A whole four. They came in waves. Like in Normandy, they were everywhere and you didn't know friend from foe. Okay, so maybe not like that. More like four came down from the pipes, see that's why the bros are plumbers, and then repeat ad nauseum. Which I say now, but back then I actually really loved. It got faster and faster and then it was like you were in warp speed where everything seemed to be in a tunnel and your little hands would move in just the right way to minimize the likelihood of death. Oh shit, this game taught me about dying? Is that why I don't like funerals? Hard to say. Character design was ridiculous by today's standards, but I knew the red guy was Mario and the green guy was Luigi. I fondly remember the ability to play with two players and trouncing my older brothers. Finally, and reigning supreme. They would of course beat me in every other way possible, but we won't talk about that. This of course led me into playing the Mario franchise as it morphed into the NES world and beyond. Why do I love platforming games? That's pretty simple. It's fast, usually has some kind of whimsical story that plays with the heartstrings of my heart, and I see now with such games as N+, and Trine, or Trine, whichever way you want to say it, which is of course a subgenre, of course, uh, a la Blizzard, uh, Blizzard's Vikings, which is a awesome game. Uh, go, go look that up. The other guys spoke more eloquently on the subject, and all I can say is that my next game is also a platformer, but more. And number two. No, that's not the name of the game, though somewhat close. Double Dragon 2. The Revenge. 
Look at that title, ladies and gentlemen. It's made for young Kung Fu fans across the globe. Yes, it's a platformer, and yes, I had graduated from the joystick single button combo to the much more advanced two buttons and weird directional arrow thingy, which suspiciously looks like the thing on your keyboard. What the fuck, NES? How weren't you sued for that? Crazy Japanese. Okay, so the gameplay follows the adventures of the Lee Brothers. The box art displays no sense of Asianness at all. This is a side-scrolling beat-em-up. But more importantly, it was full of all things martial artisty, and that made me so very happy. Like a weird kid with shiny beetles. I played the game endlessly to the point where it didn't really matter how much I blew into that damn cartridge, I had to buy another one. I had successfully mastered the art of the spinning cyclone kick. I was invincible. Look, to a fat kid whose summers consisted of eating hot dogs made on a fork and over a gas oven, this made me feel like I was a hero. A lesson to all you out there, games sometimes do make kids feel better. And on high flame, it only takes a hot dog a little over a minute to crisp up nicely. Just so you guys all know, the main storyline is that the Lee's girlfriend was shot to death by the Black Warriors leader, Willie. Firstly, don't name a bad guy after slang for a penis. Does not inspire fear no matter how much he could kick your ass. Secondly, the brothers were into sharing women. That's way too much for a young child to learn. Gameplay-wise, the game took you into different areas with different baddies to fight. You guys know the general gist. The most elegant thing about this game is really the type of actions you could do. These guys were wise to Muay way before Van Damme made Kickboxer. You could punch, kick backwards, knee, and do some excellent flying kicks. I mean, come on kids, way before all those fighting games came out, this was the sweet hot chocolate fondue of face kicks. Another lesson, sweet mullets and cut-off jackets really do make you a better martial artist. This was obviously imprinted in my mind to play beat-em-ups for the rest of my life. Currently, Batman Arkham Knight has me going, but all the others that have taken away precious hours from my family and friends are testaments to what I love about this genre. Forgive me, family, but just one more boss, please. Then shall thou count to three, no more, no less. A PC has appeared before me. A powerful 486DX. She is sleek, she is powerful, and after much asking of nerd friends with 12 3 and a quarter discs, and the commands to make this thing play sound as well, I was given unto me Day of the Tentacle. Or some would call it Maniac Mansion 2 Day of the Tentacle. My first introduction to point and click. What's point and click, you say? Well, great grandmother, it is so. You have a mouse? The game will have inventory, and with this mouse you can click on the screen to see if the things you have in your inventory will do anything. Much gnashing of teeth will occur. For example, and these are real life game examples, you are given an X, and at some point you are given a hamster. These things cannot do anything together, for you have tried. Motherfucking hell have you tried. You have clicked everywhere and nothing, for days, nothing. And then finally, in your worst hour of despair, a tree and a hamster wheel show up, and booyah, the items you have finally interact with something on the screen, and you're getting closer to the end game. But then a can opener shows up, and days are lost once again. That's actually a pretty bad explanation of what a point-and-click game is, but I'd rather just show you later, great-grandmama. So yeah, these are somewhat insidey jokes of this game. Sue me, I'm having fun remembering it and hopefully you guys will want to play this after hearing about it. The plot is about three friends who stop an alien invasion. Yes, it's more complex and wacky, but why ruin it for you? Go play it! This was the first game I really played with a soul, a game of wit, charm, and it made me laugh out loud. LucasArts was well known for its point and click, and they did a wonderful job on this, weaving a wonderfully silly plot, adding a soundtrack that fit perfectly, so you have all that, and you had puzzles. 
Well, thank you, Mr. LucasArts. You've given a young mind something to work at and kept me out of the slums of the beaches of Portugal. All that fish could corrupt a youngster like me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first ever podcast from Crushing Audio Podcast. I'd like to thank you on behalf of Alex, Mikey, Mark, and myself, Philly. This podcast was sponsored by such items as gluten-free bread and pasta provided to me by my wife, not on purpose as something I've requested, but as something that she has given me because it's quote-unquote good for me. Also, kale shakes. What the fuck, yo. We'll be back again sometime soon, hopefully in the next week or two, with a new podcast. Please join us then. Have a good night.